The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, hello, and welcome everybody to our uh, next session of the Art Science Reading Group. Uh, today we are going to be talking about space technology, aerospace, origami, robotics, and all kinds of creative design and creative thinking. Um, with me is my co-host, the lovely Emily McConville. Both of us are PhD researchers here at Trinity College Dublin. I am with uh, Science Gallery Dublin and also the School of Education. Amelia is with is doing research in neurohumanities. I'll let her talk about her own research. Um, and we just started the group because we wanted to talk about the things that happen at the extraordinary nexus of art and science. And since we're both really, really passionate about, and it's been thrilling to see how many people are excited about this research area too. So thank you for tuning in and joining us from around the world. Um, just a couple little housekeeping things. So the first part of this session, we're going to be talking with our guest, uh, Elizabeth B. Della Torre. Um, uh, for the first 30 minutes, uh, we're just going to be asking her some interview basic questions. And then after that, we'll open in the floor up to you guys. So as we're chatting, if something pops into your brain, you are burning question that you want to know, just pop it in the chat or use the Q&A function. If you just want to make a comment about Lisbeth's research or her work, pop it in there as well and we'll be sure to share as we move on. Uh, without further ado, I'll introduce my co-founder, co-host, and also another researcher extraordinaire, uh, Miss Amelia McConville. Thank you so much, Autumn. Um, thank you for that lovely intro. It's wonderful to join everyone here tonight on the Art and Science Reading Group. Um, as Autumn, uh, as you might have guessed, we have actually moved to a monthly format. So we're very glad that people could be with us um, on a sunny Thursday evening in Dublin. Um, and uh, we're delighted just to talk, as Autumn says, about uh, origami robotics blossoming in the vacuum of space, which was the tagline me and me and Autumn decided upon um, when we were coming up with the, our descriptions for this event. And we're so delighted to have Elizabeth B. With us here um, to talk about her incredible work with NASA, the MIT Media Lab, and beyond. Um, so, yeah, as, as Autumn said, please keep the QA function. Um, if questions occur to you uh, in the moment, please put them in. At about the half an hour mark, we'll be uh, switching over so that you, as the audience, lead the discussion and the questions. So, please, as much as possible, be, be popping your questions, ideas, comments, and links even um, into the chat function of the Q&A and we'll hopefully get to all the questions. Um, and thank you so much for joining us. Um, as Autumn mentioned, I am also a PhD researcher. Um, my research looks at uh, visual poetry and neurohumanities. Um, so along with Autumn, I'm also an interdisciplinary researcher. Um, and we're both based in Trinity's Longroom Hub. And just to thank the Longroom Hub and Science Gallery Dublin for this partnership and for hosting uh, us so that we can be here with you on a, on a, on a as I said, on a lovely, Sunny, sunny Thursday evening in Dublin. Um, so I'm going to introduce Elizabeth now and then we're going to start the um, interview and discussion part of our section. So uh, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce Elizabeth um, who is beaming in from LA um, this morning. As, uh, LA, it's about 10 a.m. In, in LA at the moment. So thank you so much for joining us, Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth B. De La Torre is a cre creative technologist in the studio at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. She holds a BFA in illustration, entertainment, art designing, vehicles, props and environments for feature film animation from Art Centre College of Design. Liz uses design thinking methods and techniques to imagine the future of technology in space. She earned her Master's of Science with the MIT Media Lab's Space Enabled Research Group. She works on creative projects and tech demos for various space missions and mission formulation for future missions, apart from illustrating two posters, including in the NASA Visions of the Future series, Europa and Ceres. She has also co-led research in astronaut devices and wearables for situational awareness and robotic interaction on Mars. Her current research examines the intersection of creativity in aerospace and how creative techniques are of benefit to space technology innovation. She's also a consultant with the Science and Entertainment Exchange, um, a program of National Academy of Sciences that connects entertainment industry professionals with top scientists and engineers to create a synergy between accurate science and engaging storylines in both film and TV programming. And I think hopefully if we have time, we'll get a chance to chat with you a little bit more about that uh, later on, Lisbeth. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Um, thank you. Um, 
thank you so much, both of you, for um, inviting me to be here today. Um, it's uh, also sunny here in Los Angeles, <laughs> actually. So um, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm really excited to kind of uh, talk about all of those things today. So thank you so much. Well, it's a pretty incredible CV. So I mean, let's just dive right in. I, I think probably all of our audience members have a ton of questions and a million hours struggling to get our questions down to a limited number. Uh, so just to kick off, uh, after undergrad, you went straight into working for the studio at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that experience and what it is exactly that you and your colleagues do there? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so I kind of I was very lucky to actually get there. <laughs> um, so during my last year in undergrad, uh, the the mission manager for the Rosetta mission came into my college, Art Center College of Design. Um, it's actually right next to JPL, uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, about five minutes away. And uh, he was looking for a graphic designer. And uh, he came into the room, uh, the classroom, and said, Is any, does anybody want an internship in graphic design? And I raised my hand, like both hands real high, and nobody else did. <laughs> and it was a, a little uh, interesting there. Um, I, I think that uh, at the time, uh, you know, people were just so busy. Um, and, uh, but yeah, and so I kind of started there as an intern and then, uh, seven years later, uh, here I am <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and at the studio is a really great group of creative designers who, um, have backgrounds in various things from advertising to illustration to, um, uh, animation, film, prop design as well, um, a lot of different backgrounds and we kind of all come together to, um, kind of communicate science in different ways. And what happens is, uh, a department within JPL will come in and uh, so the Earth Science Department, for example, will want to communicate how many satellites um, are going around the Earth at any given time. Uh, and so we will create something either physical that shows that or um, either or 2D, it can be an animation. But what's great is that we kind of get um, a lot of freedom to kind of um, kind of influence what that might look like. That sounds absolutely amazing, Elizabeth. It's it's such a. I mean, before we got in touch in touch with you, I hadn't even been aware. Even as as a interdisciplinary researcher, I myself hadn't even been aware that such an amazing sort of interdisciplinary area existed, and particularly associated with such prestigious institutions. It's so heartening. I think we um we know from our conversations with you to see how much that um that 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 art science combination has come to influence your work, and and the, particularly the route that you took to get there is like so inspiring. I think. Um, I, another thing that myself and Autumn have wanted to ask you is uh, to talk a little bit, I mean it's a wide question, but we want you to talk a little bit about the role of the artist's imagination in space science. Uh, yes, so um, so this role, it's kind of, um, it's a big question, <laughs> so I mean kind of think about how to say that a little bit. Uh, so uh, space, technology space technology development specifically, I will say all engineers are creatives, I think, I think they're, I call, I consider them all artists. <laughs> and, uh, artists, designers. Um, actually, it's interesting because within NASA, when you say designer, it means the engineers, actually. And so it's not actually like the creative designer. <laughs> so it's kind of an interesting loop there. Um, but yeah, and so uh, what I mean when I say space technology development and creativity within that space is finding creative solutions to problems that engineers and scientists might not uh, consider. And uh, what our team does in the studio is we're involved sometimes with um, a team called A-Team, which is mission formulation. So when all of the space missions are um, being developed, there's a team that goes in and says, this is how we're going to get to Mars. And that team has a lot of brainstorm sessions. And within those brainstorms to come up with ideas, um, there's always a visual strategist in the room that comes in to kind of, um, kind of ask questions that are not science specific. <laughs> so uh, questions like, um, what is the importance of the mission uh, to humanity? Uh, those larger questions like that, um, and even kind of sketching out things as scientists and engineers are talking. It's also really important to kind of, uh, kind of help them see solutions that they might not have thought of before, uh, because a creative person is now in the room with them. And so um, one example was the origami robotics that I kind of um, uh, I like to use that example a little bit. Um, it's not actually a space robot, but I mean, it could be. <laughs> it has its applications. Uh, but um, that's kind of an example of an art form origami being used for a technology um, and to kind of um, amplify how it moves and uh, 
Um, and yeah, and so that's what I consider uh, a creative individual within that space. Kind of following on from that too, and I love that I, I had no idea that an engineer in, in NASA and JPL and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory was called a designer, but those words were kind of interchangeable. So that's really, really exciting. That's really interesting. Um, but I know that one of the early projects that you worked on with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory was the Rosetta mission. And that seemed to be an absolutely incredible example of uh, you kind of using your imagination to formulate the future and, and help these engineers, these designers and scientists work towards a future mission. Could you give us a little bit more information about the Rosetta mission? Absolutely. So um, for those of you who don't know, the Rosetta mission was a mission um, that is uh, an orbiter, which is a satellite, um, going to uh, circle around a comet and observe it for the first time. And it had a little lander that was going to, um, basically it harpooned itself onto the comet as it's spinning and going towards the sun. It was very like, it's, it's almost like a movie. So it was very action based, which was really great. And um, so that mission, um, when they first started, they had one pixel of, that's the only image they had was one pixel, a one pixel image of the comet. And, um, you know, scientists were kind of wondering, so what is this, there was a lot of um, a debate about what the surface would look like once we got there. Um, also, especially concerning the lander and, you know, it has to harpoon itself. And so uh, what my role was during this mission was to kind of take all of the data that scientists know is there. So there are a couple things that we know uh, that the surface contains, um, a low albedo, um, specific molecules that are there. And so my task was to kind of use my background in feature film to kind of um, stitch together images. Um, it's actually a technique called matte painting, it's called. If you've seen any movie ever, um, like Star Wars, uh, Jurassic Park, all of the backgrounds are not actually a lot, many of them are not actually 3D, they're painted by hand or um, they're. Uh, photographs stitched together to create a background. And they look really real because a lot of the time they are actually photos of things that are real <laughs> and uh, just kind of extended or, you know, more photos added. And so I used that technique for the space mission um, to kind of stitch together an image of what the terrain would look like. And so they would tell me things like um, uh, the rocks look like the, the the rocks look like the rocks in Mojave Desert in California. So I would go out, take pictures of the rocks, superimpose them into this image, um, alter the color to be specific to what that, to where the sun is <laughs> with a, you know, as we'll be getting there. And, um, and so at one point, the, a funny story, uh, someone mentioned the surface is very spongy, like a sponge, not like a kitchen sponge, but like um, a pancake, as you're a cake as you're cooking it. And so I cooked a, a pancake and uh, took photos of the little bubbles that were arising and that made it into the final image. <laughs> so sometimes not so glamorous, but we do what we do. <laughs> and yeah, and so it actually, um, there's a really great comparison image that I wish I had sent you, but uh, they kind of compared my uh, prediction, our prediction to uh, what it actually looked like. And it was fairly accurate, which was pretty cool. And um, I ended up writing a science paper about it. And so it's called um, Unseen Worlds Feature Film Techniques for Space Mission Planning. Um, if anybody is interested in checking that out at some point, um, I'm not sure if it's up on Google yet. But, uh, but yeah, and so that's kind of, um, with this visual, they were able to kind of visualize more clearly what that terrain, what, what to expect when you get there. Um, and not that they actually used it for the science because um, you, know, you have to be uh, really, really sure to use something like that <laughs> as a science piece. And so, but it did help kind of uh, to begin ideas on um, things like how do you harpoon into it correctly, those sorts of things. And so, yeah, it was a very awesome, experience. <laughs> to be I think it's incredible that pictures of a pancake can help you harpoon a comet. <laughs> Science is awesome. And actually, uh, Elizabeth, if you send that uh, paper to myself or Amelia, we have a B-Sides email that goes out after this chat, and we'll be happy to share it with everybody who's attended. Um, so long as you give us permission, we're happy to share that. Sounds awesome. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll see if I can find that <laughs> online. As long as it's public. I'm not sure if it's public yet is the only thing. You know how it goes with research papers. <laughs> um, but uh, I think I think Elizabeth, I mean that that anecdote alone is absolutely fascinating. I'm also thinking of, I know we mentioned briefly in uh, your introduction, like another way that you drew upon your film and entertainment background um, to also fuse your uh, work with, with NASA and space exploration and space technology. And I'm talking, of course, of the visions of the future travel posters. Could you tell us a little bit about these and uh, what they are um, and maybe what your role was in producing two of the, the beautiful series? Absolutely. So this project was, uh, so our creative director was David Delgado and Dan Goods, uh, members of the studio. And, uh, but this was kind of a studio-wide project. It was one of the first times we had all really worked together on one big project. Um, and uh, what happened was, um, so these posters were kind of meant to kind of uh, showcase how, um, uh, so we have a lot of exoplanets, I guess is where I'll start. <laughs> and exoplanets are uh, planets that are circling around other stars. So all of the stars in the sky that you see, uh, more often than not, they have planets as well. So similar to ours. So there's actually probably more planets than there are stars in the sky. And, uh, you know, some are close to us, some are habitable, some aren't. And, um, and so what this was trying to kind of showcase was, uh, so if you could travel to these planets that exist so far away from us, uh, well, why would you want to go there? <laughs> and it was difficult because sometimes they're really scary planets. <laughs> um, sometimes there was, there's one planet that isn't showcased in the posters, but um, it's, it's got like an equator where the sun, it's ne it never moves. So the sun is constantly hitting one side and it's always dark on the other side. And if you were to tan, like tan right in the middle, like lay down and just like sunbathe, <laughs> like one side of your body would be like totally red, right? So um, we were just thinking like, what are the cool things about these planets that people would want to go visit? And um, so we, we also did planets and, and moons in our own solar system. And so Europa, uh, showcased here, is a moon of Jupiter. And it, um, it's, it's what scientists believe might be the most likely place to find life within our solar system, if not the Earth. And the reason for this is really cool, is that it's this uh, big ice planet. And so it's got this giant ice crust. And in the middle, it's really warm. And so what you get when you have like heat and ice is water. And so it's got this giant ocean right in the middle. And uh, so they're thinking that like, if we could get there and kind of see things, what would it look like um, underneath? And so um, what we have here are these kind of uh, gigantic um, octopus looking uh, structures <laughs> that people have built and they're now kind of inhabiting uh, under this uh, ice crust. And so, um, so I kind of thought of, uh, we, we always think of taglines for these posters, and uh, this one is discover life under the ice, but also part of the reason is NASA can't say life, like we can't go out because we don't know aliens exist or not, they don't yet. Um, and so uh, it's kind of a play on words of life and also like go live your life. Um, and so yeah, it's, it was really an interesting experience there. and. Um, and so the process for developing these posters is we would meet with the scientists and the science teams for each of these planets and moons. And so like the lead scientist for Europa who is working with us on this poster, um, he's like the world's expert on this topic. And so it was great seeing them come up with ideas <laughs> because that was like really awesome and because they know so much about these worlds that um, we were like, oh, what about ice skating? And they're like, oh no, we can't because you know the ice isn't as flat <laughs> in this area. Um, it was really interesting to hear their perspectives on our ideas as well. And so, um, yeah, it was it was great. <laughs> Amazing, and I, I love this one particularly. Um, I'm going to try and share um, the series one. Uh, I'm I'm just going to try, but could you maybe talk about the other one you um, you showed us? Uh, I'm going to pull it up here oh. for us, but it's oh, um, yeah. it's so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, this poster that um, Amelia is going to be sharing is called, it's for Ceres. And um, it's kind of, uh, <laughs> Ceres is a, a, I guess it's like a little planetoid, it's a giant asteroid, it's a very big asteroid. Um, and uh, maybe planetoid, I'm not entirely sure on that. But so we were kind of thinking, so it's, it's kind of got a lot of uh, salt deposits and a kind of ice on it. And we were thinking this is probably um, your last chance for water until Jupiter. Like if you were on, a, on a, a road trip through the solar system, this is like your last stop. And it's kind of like, you know, uh, when you're driving, you kind of have these 
rest stations where you can just refuel. This is kind of that uh, for the solar systems <laughs> version of that. And um, there's a little kind of, um, uh, there's a little city uh, when, I don't know if you, uh, in the United States, we have uh, Las, Las Vegas. It's a huge uh, casino style um, <laughs> place that um, everybody goes to Las Vegas and you take a road trip to go. And before you get there, there's a little town that has this sign. It's called Reno, Nevada. And they have this giant sign. Um, and we always thought like, it, it's really interesting that like before you get there, there's this grand little rest stop <laughs> almost. And so that's kind of what this was about. And it's kind of a play on that, uh, that journey um, to another place. And yeah, so that's kind of what this was. And it was really exciting uh, to hear specifically scientists <laughs> talk about this one as well, because, um, you know, it's almost series of, as in, as a celestial body is almost trying to be bigger than it is <laughs> in some way. And so you've got like this really big sign <laughs> and it's like this tiny place, right? So that was kind of a play on, on that as well. And uh, it's kind of, yeah, yeah, I think it was kind of giving planets a personality almost and kind of, a, you know, finding the fun things about those worlds. Absolutely. And funny <laughs> enough, when I was um, putting up a little bit about your content um, on Instagram and just doing some promotion across social media, a friend of mine, just totally unrelated to, I hadn't been speaking to you about this group, was like, oh, I have one of the posters from that series in my bedroom. And it's, it's just crazy. And, you know, he's, he's not particularly sciencey himself, but he obviously just shows how these posters, I think, really capture the public imagination. And as you say, like, give a little bit of personality to these planets and these ideas. It's amazing. Yeah, and um, I really love that because it really is meant to reach everyone. It's uh, not just the science community um, as well. And um, it's really interesting that we're kind of at this place now with exoplanets specifically where, you know, we can't image them. So we're kind of back to drawing again, kind of like in like the 1800s when um, 1700s, when you would draw Paris because you can't, you know, physically go there and take a picture. And we're kind of back to that stage now with exoplanets, which is really interesting. So it's kind of a cool loop there. Um, but yeah, that thing, that's great to know. I'm glad he has those posters <laughs> in his room. <laughs> I think it's really cool too that like a lot of what you're talking about is about connecting to the imagination, but also how connecting to the imagination helps us kind of uh, connect to the future and maybe connect to how we might inhabit or explore or experience these exoplanets, planets, planetoids, moons. And I think it's cool too that it's not just planets that these posters were about, that it was all different kinds of solar bodies. And it really just kind of expounds the imagination and the things that there are out there to consider that like the, the moons around Jupiter and Saturn are probably one of the best bets to like look for life on these like ocean worlds. So I thought that was really, really cool. Um, get, kind of going on from that, uh, you weren't just at JPL, you recently took some time to go over to the MIT Media Lab for your master's degree. Um, so we wanted to learn a little bit more about what you were doing over there at the MIT Media Lab. What is the MIT Media Lab? And what is this thing about an anti-disciplinary approach? What does that mean? Ah, so, um, so yeah, so uh, a lot of things to answer there, but so the Media Lab, uh, I guess I'll, I'll start by going why I, why I kind of decided to take some time to go there. And um, really it was about, um, so my work beca became more technical um, throughout my time at JPL. And uh, what I mean by that is like, I started working with, for example, mission formulation, um, or even getting my own funding to run um, uh, workshops. So like astronaut devices and wearables that were mentioned previously. Um, but through the lens of design and how we might create systems for those things. And uh, my problem was that um, I was frequently being asked to write uh, science papers. And, um, you know, I didn't know how to do that <laughs> because I had a, a Bachelor of Fine Art. And so um, I thought, you know, maybe if I'm going to be doing more of these things, I should get a master's degree in a science. <laughs> and um, of course, I picked specifically the MIT Media Lab because they're so... Um, Anti-disciplinary, I guess, is the word I like to use sometimes, and that means that teams are formed of research groups. Um, there's a lot of different research groups within the media lab. Uh, there's biomechatronics um, that focuses on um, prosthetics uh, and tangible media, who um, is focuses on making data tangible, and um, a lot of different groups. But each of them are kind of composed of 
designers, creatives, artists, and also neuroscientists sometimes. Um, it's a really healthy mix of both the engineering and science and also the creativity and design. And it's, I think it's reflected very well in a lot of their work where um, it's, um, it's a really great, like you might see an engineering project, but it's very well designed <laughs> as if a designer worked on it <laughs> uh, because it's so um, such a healthy mix of those things. And they're really thinking about technology that doesn't exist anywhere else. And that's their whole thing is um, if it can be done somewhere else, they don't want it. So um, things like, um, like the first iterations of Google Maps were created there in the 1970s, which is very early actually. And uh, they didn't patent that technology <laughs> because they thought no one would want it. And so, <laughs> you know, that's kind of how Google Maps is now around. And so they kind of work on really early um, things that you might not see for 40, 50 years out in the public. And so that's the sort of things they work on. And uh, my group was a space-enabled research group where um, it's a, it was a brand new group. I was the first, kind of one of the first people in the cohort coming in. And it's led by Dr. Danielle Wood, who is, um, she's, uh, she used to be um, at NASA headquarters for a very long time. And her focus is on um, solving complex systems on earth and through um, kind of, uh, kind of gathering um, a multitude of different skill sets. So uh, for example, um, she, she, they kind of work on advancing justice on earth through art and design, but also science, data science, um, and uh, systems engineering. So you kind of have a, in her group exist the traditional space, aerospace skill sets, but with a little bit of sprinkle of art and design <laughs> as well. And that was kind of my role was kind of, um, actually my role within her group was uh, kind of seeing how we might include non-engineering disciplines within the flight mission life cycle that currently exists. So um, it's NASA, NASA follows a very specific set of, of reviews and rules that have to, that kind of are involved in planning a space mission. And it's very rigid. <laughs> there isn't much room for designers. Um, and so that was kind of my role is how can we kind of look at this and kind of uh, include designers in this uh, field. And that's kind of my master's thesis there was um, exploratory design methods and techniques for space mission design. And um, I'll see if I can send that your way <laughs> as well. But that was my whole thesis is how do we do that? And so I kind of spent some time at Disney as well, um, looking at how Imagineers, um, how they work together with creatives, um, because that is kind of one organization that really you know, it's both engineers and designers. And just seeing how we can sprinkle some of the magic um, throughout, <laughs> uh, throughout NASA. And yeah, so that was a very long-winded way of saying that um, the Space Enabled group is great. And <laughs> they are also working <laughs> a lot on um, uh, reusable propulsion, like propulsion systems, uh, biodegradable fuels, fuels that um, are not dangerous for people to use <laughs> for space. Uh, if you're an, if you're in a country that is just starting a space program, um, you can't really use all of these uh, really heavy machine, like all these really heavy um, uh, fuels that you need a clean room for. And so kind of giving access to space to people that don't have access to it as well right now. Incredible. And I absolutely love how um, in your description of your work with the MIT Media Lab, I love how your work and your, your master's thesis is not just, you know, carving out its own niche in terms of being a mix of artistic and scientific sensibilities, but is also clearing the space for further research in the field. It, it's really inspirational that you're able to, while actually being an art science practitioner, clear the space for future future projects and 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 make that relevance and, and make that relevance sort of, I suppose, yeah, to finding a, a space for designers and people who do designs into um into these like intensely scientific environments. Um Elizabeth, I'm I know I'm conscious that we uh we have billed our chat uh with you tonight as definitely touching on origami and how origami um, can be used to influence robotics and space technology. And I'm dying to ask you a little bit about that. So I think the question that we, we want to ask you will pitch it quite widely, but we'd love to know how can aesthetics inform or improve the functionality of robots and how did origami come to have such an important role within robotics? Ah, thank you. So, um, so yeah, so um, I kind of uh, have, I sent you some images of the robot that um, I kind of worked on and just emphasize that was a collaboration with uh, two other MIT colleagues, Gianni Zhang and Elena Kodama, who are incredible, also designers. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and so it's kind of a question also, but uh, hmm. so I guess where I can start is 
uh, origami um, is a, it's a very old art form. <laughs> it's been around for a very long time. And uh, traditionally, it has been uh, just that, an art form. Uh, but uh, recently, uh, aerospace has started using these techniques for, um, for uh, solar panels, spacecraft like uh, Starshade specifically is a, a spacecraft that uses origami. And um, really, uh, whenever you need to fold something up really small, <laughs> because to send something up to space, uh, you get very little space to do that. And so actually origami has been very useful at that. <laughs> um, but specifically for robotics, um, it's very young still within robotics. Uh, but, um, but other areas of space have been using this for a very long time. And uh, this particular robot was um, uh, kind of a crawling robot that was imagined by uh, myself, Elena Kodama, and Yanni Zhang to kind of be uh, something that was a flat sheet that we could just uh, fold and create by hand. And um, ideally, hopefully anyone could make this. <laughs> um, but we tried to kind of open source that material. And as soon as that is released, I will send it your way too. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's a really great project where um, it was, I think there's a, a very much, um, I think, Aesthetics are very much linked to technology already. If you see any car designs, a lot of uh, the fancy new cars that are very sleek, um, they also have aerodynamic uh, features to them, which is why sometimes they're very sleek. And so uh, already, already aesthetics are kind of involved within the technology space. And so um, I was thinking of other ways, other ways that technology, specifically space technology, might use those methods to kind of, um, uh, kind of create things that look I don't want to say cooler, but like this alien, it looks like an alien and it's uh, kind of bio-inspired. And so I was thinking of different forms and aesthetics that might take shape if we use these different, um, these different artistic methods. And so while this is just a prototype right now, it is very much um, still, it works <laughs> and it walks. You know, the first steps were amazing because we were like, oh my God, it's actually walking. <laughs> um, it was really great to see. But yes, and so um, I think that if you've seen any of the things that SpaceX, for example, has released uh, recently, um, we just they just launched a short while ago, and uh, people to space, which is really great. And if you look at the inside of the cockpit, it's like a brand new car. It looks like they're flying first class now. And um, that was because they had a designer on their team that was influencing kind of all of these uh, user interface designs as a uh, and how the human interacts with the with the spacecraft, which was something that um, is a newer thing for space, I think, right now. And yeah, and so that's kind of there are very a lot of different ways that aesthetics influence <laughs> space technology from the person interacting with the robot to the robot's um, interaction with its environment. Um, but all of them, I think, can benefit from uh, from designers and creative individuals in general. <laughs> That's amazing. And I think, too, like going and looking back at such an ancient art form and using that to kind of inform robotics and really the future of dynamic and really fluid movements in robotics it's just wild and I, I don't know if this is is part of of your work but we did also find a couple of papers and some work on how origami has influenced solar panels and light sails in space um, and we've seen a few that NASA is working on where they literally look like they're blossoming solar panels in space and it is absolutely just stunning i sent it to amelia um a few days ago just showing back and forth like oh god this is just incredible <laughs> yeah absolutely actually um starshade is i think is the one that you're mentioning with the blossoming and yeah. it looks kind of like a sunflower um yep. as it unfurls um and uh there's reasons why it, why it looks like that which is really great um as like the tips diffuse the light in a specific way that you can kind of capture an image it's really awesome the, that team was great and um, I had the, I was so, I was fortunate enough to see it before the lockdown happened. <laughs> um, oh. And uh, it was, it's really big. I just can't explain how giant it is, but origami is great in that um, it's very much um, like if you fold a piece of paper, um, it will always have that hinge and it will always fold a specific way. So it's uh, pretty accurate in its, um, and you being able to decide an angle that you want to fold something and then it will stay like that. <laughs> I think in terms of uh, just being able to control mechanisms, it's really wonderful. 
So before we turn to some of our audience questions, because we want to give plenty of time to uh, let everybody uh, ask their questions and make their comments and interact with you about your work and your research, uh, we've just got one more. Uh, there was a particular comment in the reading. And by the way, uh, folks, if you didn't get to do the reading or you didn't get to do the art, uh, check out the artworks, uh, don't worry, you can always go back to the website and check it out. We'll also be sending a follow-up email, which will have the original reading in it, so you can check it out later. Um, but there was a quote here that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you said, drawing had become a crutch of sorts for communicating ideas, and it wasn't going to work by itself in the academic field I found myself in. I needed to support my concepts with written papers and working prototypes in order for them to be accepted as research. It's really a unique opportunity to be able to cross the boundaries of both disciplines and mix both worlds. Uh, so I guess we were wondering if you could speak a bit more to hopping between those worlds, learning those different languages and the customs and traditions within art and science and how those kind of shape and inform the way you think about the future of your own research. Um, absolutely. And so um, I will say I wrote this kind of as, I, which is really great, as I was kind of transitioning or stepping into the science world as an artist. And um, what happened to me was, uh, <laughs> as if it was an event, um, <laughs> it was, uh, I, I'm really comfortable with drawing. Um, if I am talking to you and want to explain something, I will usually resort to sketching it so that people will know what, it, what I'm talking about. And uh, what happened was stepping into an academic space, um, it's great to have the imagery, but in order to make it a science, I had to write and describe what I was doing. <laughs> and um, as you know, as you're writing a research paper, it's very much, it's very analytical. Um, you have to have citations. And as a designer, that was very new for me. And so um, I, I was thinking like, oh, if I could just draw it, like I could tell you what I'm thinking. <laughs> and so um, what I say when I mean a crutch, I mean that I was using my artwork to kind of avoid <laughs> kind of uh, writing at the time. And, uh, and yeah, and so it was really interesting learning how to kind of balance both of those worlds, um, only because when I was trying to communicate to a scientist, they would wanna see research, like uh, papers, uh, written documentation of things. And by showing them an illustration that didn't work so well, <laughs> that was not actually research, uh, even though, um, within the art and design world, we also use the term research, but it's very different than, the meaning is very different than in science. Uh, for a designer and artist, research will sometimes mean gathering imagery, motifs, um, uh, just reading a lot about a topic, um, but usually it's not documented in the way that a science would be. And really, I see them both as like, they're very similar, and art could be a science if it's written down. <laughs> and so um, that was kind of my, my waking moment was that, okay, yes, I just have to write things down <laughs> as I'm working on them. And so that was kind of an interesting uh, balance there, where um, also designers don't really care much about research papers sometimes. They actually are really largely uninterested. And so for them, I would have to draw and create imagery uh, for my design uh, folks that I'm working with and uh, for the scientists who need research papers. And so that was kind of a, a moment of learning that the languages are um, uh, largely the same, but also very different. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was very interesting that that um, realization. Incredible, uh, Elizabeth, and, and it's such a such a wonderful, fascinating, and fruitful and inspiring note to um, end the section where me and Autumn ask you our questions. Um, we we are delighted now to move over to the audience Q and A, and thank you so much for bearing with us as we ask all our uh, all our uh, formulated questions um, based off of uh, everything you you you'd said and shared with us before we actually sat down to, to have this conversation. Um, I'm delighted to note that the Q and A section is uh, is very is very busy lots of activity going on um, so I'm going to field a couple of these audience questions um, to you now Elizabeth if that's okay and hopefully we'll get a chance to speak to everybody uh, or to, to ask everybody's questions because there's some a, a wonderful variety I think of, of different questions that are coming in. Um, Indigo Reeve asks uh, quite simply what was your favorite project that you've worked on at NASA? Oh wow there's so many um, I think just honestly just to be in in the room where it happens <laughs> uh, just to be <laughs> uh, just to be in the room where all of these things are happening um, and it's it's real time real science happening uh, where we're going to go off to explore another world or being a part of um, I think it's just it's always just an um, 
some, it's always just like a, I get like this cognitive shift of like, oh my God, I want to cry because like I'm walking into a room and it's to design something that's going to go to another planet. Um, I think uh, that by itself is just, it's always there <laughs> uh, every day walking to work. And so I think that's, um, I, I don't really have a favorite, but if I did have a favorite, I would say uh, the Rosetta, working on the Rosetta mission was probably my favorite um, only because of the, I was so involved with the team and got to know them really well. And uh, just to help imagine what a terrain would look like is really wild. Absolutely, it's it's so incredible. Um, I think there's another questions coming in. Um, so we have, uh, oh, a slightly fun one coming in from Daniel Scarantino, who asks, if the technology existed today, is there a particular extraterrestrial place you'd like to visit and why that place? Uh, all these good questions. <laughs> I'm like, I want to go everywhere. Um, but so if the technology existed, um, places that I, I know of, I would really like to go to Venus because it's it's really nice up above the clouds on Venus, like on Ven the clouds are really beautiful. And if you were to take an air balloon, you could just float above the, above the clouds and you'd be fine. Um, but if you go below the clouds, it's like, it's like wild. There's volcanoes and like, it's just wild. It's thunder, very dangerous um, all the time. Like there's no break. <laughs> and so I think I'd really like to just see what that looks like. It's, it's always just been really interesting to me. Venus is a good one. Amazing. So we've got another really good question from Megan McKenzie, who says, uh, can you get me a better under give me a better understanding of what systems engineering is? Ah, uh, yes. So systems engineers are wonderful. Uh, so systems engineering is um, they're largely involved in, well, from what I know, in mission formulation, involved in all aspects of mission design and space missions. And what they do is systems engineers have a high understanding of the entire system of the spacecraft. So um, within a spacecraft, you'll have an electrical engineer that is working on electronics. Um, you might have an engineer that is specifically for like science measurement, and they're focusing on one instrument and there's like 10 instruments, right? <laughs> and so um, the systems engineers kind of at like top level and they are involved in all aspects of the space mission. Um, I think if I was like gonna do an engineering track, it would definitely be systems engineering because it's just they're involved in everything from um, concept all the way through to launch. And so I think that's really unique about the systems engineer. Awesome. Uh, we have another really great question from Alex Pentec, who is coming from Cork, Ireland. Uh, says, loving this talk. I'm an origami artist uh, working with roboticist Dr. Guangbo uh, Hao at the University College Cork, and I'm really interested in how, how much trial and error uh, passive dynamics and material-led design is part of your origami and robotics research. Awesome. Well, that's a great question and uh, <laughs> awesome to hear another origami person in the room. That's really great. <laughs> so I think um, material specifically, uh, so it's, it's difficult within aerospace. So if I was going to be creating a robot for aerospace, um, the materials, uh, the material constraints are really different than on Earth. They have to be like space grade materials, um, you know, blown up a million times before we know it's safe. Uh, a lot of the fun stuff. Um, but prototyping for me, I think is really the most fun, the best part of it because you can really um, work with even just paper um, and any kind of materials to kind of uh, kind of simulate the, the thing that you want to do. And so for me, that was kind of um, the, the main thing is, um, I think I'm not as involved in like the space grade material portion of things, but in the design and the folding and how it happens, uh, which I think is really unique to origami and that you could just prototype it <laughs> and it will happen. <laughs> and um, yeah, and so hopefully that answers your question. Incredible. <laughs> Um, we actually, I mean, we seem to have really uh, gathered quite the crowd here tonight, um, Elizabeth, because we have another um, person who's working on uh, an origami robot for the Space Exploration Lab in Chile. Uh, so this awesome. is Luis Man who's asking, can he contact you? So I'm, I'd be absolutely delighted to put you guys in touch. So yeah, absolutely, yeah. Luis, if you, if you want to, we'll, we will, if it's okay with Elizabeth, we'll post her email address 
perhaps in the chat uh, if, in case anybody wants to follow up on this amazing discussion. Um, so that's uh, wonderful. Who, who, who would have thought that we had so many experts <laughs> in the room with us tonight? Um, wow, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> um, we have another question coming in from uh, Priyanka Desgupta. And Priyanka asks, in asking these questions to the engineers, and I think this, uh, this goes back a little bit to our discussion um, earlier on, in asking these questions to the engineers to gauge how to visualize the mission, how much back and forth is expected with the mission with, with the mission team further to then finalizing the creative? What is the sort of timeline that you have to come up with, um, that you have to come up with a visual or creative? Oh, so that's, uh, that definitely varies. Um, so what, uh, for, what I'll first say is that, um, so when our studio kind of helps engineers um, uh, kind of solve problems, we like to call it think through their thinking. We help them think through their thinking. Um, almost like therapists. <laughs> um, so engineers already know all of the answers and we're just kind of there to unlock, um, unlock different ways of thinking about those things. And so there's kind of, that's one aspect of the work. And then there's a visual, which might be like a graphic design or a visual development piece. Um, and that piece is, um, it, it definitely varies <laughs> for sure. Sometimes as the science is changing, so is the artwork. So sometimes it's even real time. Um, it might be there with a pen in hand and uh, just, you know, drawing um, as they're kind of giving the information. And so that's also really fun as well, is that um, nothing is ever really done, which I think is really great. <laughs> if that answers the question, hopefully. Thank you. Yeah, um, and we've got um, one from Colin Sanderson, who has a book question. Um, <laughs> so do you know uh, the books from the origami expert Robert J. Lang? If so, which of his books would you recommend? Um, if not, no problem, thank you. If not, are there any books on origami that you could recommend to our audience? Ah, so. Actually, I will say I haven't read too many books on origami, uh, but Robert Lang is awesome. And uh, I know his work and I know uh, I've read of him, but I ha don't, haven't read any of his books, but I really should. And I know. <laughs> um, but I will say that um, when I started, I was, I, it was really interesting because I went to a bookstore to find an origami book just to see what it was in the beginning, like when I was first starting. And it was in the, in the craft section. It was in the DIY section. And I was really interested because I was like, oh, I, I was thinking this was thinking of it in a more mechanical way in a science versus crafting. And so all of the origami books that I've seen so far or read so far have all been craft books and DIY books. And um, that doesn't, you know, remove, it doesn't um, make them less valid than other books uh, because they're still kind of, um, especially if you're learning, it's really great to learn mount the difference versus mountain and valley folds and um, really the linkage structures. So what I would say and what I would recommend is looking at those craft books, but thinking of them in a more analytical way in terms of how do these linkages hold together? Um, what is the action that happens when I move this thing? Um, because sometimes you'll move one thing and something else moves and that's when it gets really interesting and you get really wild shapes. And um, so when I think of linkages and engineering, um, any any engineering concept like the four bar linkage um, you might think of them as metal but they can also be paper and so when I approach origami I have a more of an engineering mindset behind it where I go in thinking of it as like an engineering linkage and um, I think that with any book you can do that as well um, and in that way they're all very helpful but um, but yes whether I recommend a book or not um, any origami book that will teach you how to fold is wonderful <laughs> Incredible. Thanks, Elizabeth. Um, that's amazing. Um, we have another question coming in um, from Danielle Hennis. And Danielle asks, I think, I think actually a very pertinent question that something I was wondering a little bit myself, is that how do you convince scientists who may be skeptical of the benefits of designers that you add value? I mean, Elizabeth, is this something you face, um, you know, on a daily basis? Is it more sort of an overall thing? How, how do you convince these scientists that you, that you, add, by, that you add value, those who might be skeptical? That's a wonderful question and the basis of all of my research, <laughs> um, actually. So, which is really, it really is, is um, so my entire master's thesis, um, I collected a lot of interviews. Um, I did a lot of interviews with artists who are in engineering and science space and al almost all of them um, had to kind of fight for their right to be there almost, um, only because, you know, um, someone got a comment about, um, oh, I'm an interior designer, <laughs> but they're not. <laughs> even though their education is wildly different and uh it not that interior designers are is a bad thing it's just that that's not what we do 
And so um, it's, you get misclassified a lot of the time. Um, and really it's just kind of uh, uh, emphasizing the problem solving portion of things because artists and creatives always help solve problems. And that's really, it really is, you're helping people see things in a new light uh, oftentimes. And so um, what I like to do is um, even just like go in and not, I don't call, I don't call myself an artist, uh, but I do artwork. And so um, it, within certain spaces, I might even call myself something else, just depending on what that situation is calling for sometimes. And uh, it's really unfortunate sometimes, uh, but you know, that's kind of how I have navigated those spaces. And, um, and yeah, and I, I did write a whole, I'll see if I'm hoping that paper is public now, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I have a lot of interviews. I've done a lot of interviews on, um, with artists who are in specifically aerospace who have talked about how challenges that they faced, but, um, I have faced that a little bit. And, um, even in job titles, sometimes, uh, specifically engineering institutions don't have, the title of an art director, right? And so um, it's kind of been a challenge for me in that space in that I work primarily in engineering and sciences, but job titles aren't always what I would like them to be or don't exist sometimes. And uh, it kind of having to create those spaces. And I think it's happening more and more where um, aerospace companies are bringing in designers now. And so hopefully that will, that has been changing though, for sure in the past, within the past 10 years at least. So we are building our space right now. <laughs> it's happening. <laughs> As these spaces get built, and um, I regret to inform you, this is not an audience question. This is a me question. Um, <laughs> no uh, swinging through. Um, as we're creating these art science spaces, you know, where your experience with both the MIT Media Lab and also the studio at NASA JPL is fascinating because these, these kinds of art science spaces seem to be, these incubation spaces seem to be becoming more and more important kind of to the future of innovation and the future of technology and thinking about how technology kind of integrates within society and how we as humans kind of interact with this stuff. So in creating these incubation spaces, what would be most useful for the scientists and the artists that find themselves in those places? What kind of support did they need? But do they need people like you were talking about these different languages that you've learned to speak in working in both the arts and the sciences? Uh, do we need do we need art science translators? What sort of expertise does it take to be there? And what sort of support would you like to see in those spaces? Um, thank you. That's a wonderful question. And so what I found from my research currently is that there's um, a lack of knowledge um, on uh, the engineering side of things as to what a designer and artist, what the, sometimes what the differences are between the two, um, and also um, just a working language, right? Uh, sometimes they're so similar that it's hard to distinguish. So as I mentioned, like when we say research as an artist, it's different when you say research as a scientist. And so sometimes there's some like um that kind of gets lost in translation sometimes and so i think like a, a design or art language uh, a, a taxonomy would be very helpful <laughs> and i think actually uh most helpful because uh right now if you're in an engineering program art is somewhat of an elective sometimes so you don't have to take art classes it's kind of if you want to you can um but for artists we don't take engineering classes either we <laughs> only take art classes and so i think there's such a separation of the two that um if there's a way either through language or through early education uh, to kind of just have more art and design class just have more classes together sometimes um that kind of helps bridge that gap a little bit and i have noticed when working with engineers who um who are also industrial designers, for example, because a lot of industrial designers um, are uh, engineers sometimes, and they have a really good understanding of that as well. So um, I think that's kind of what I would recommend is a, a taxonomy or a language, and also even just understanding what each other, what we do <laughs> is really great and helpful. Absolutely, Elizabeth, and thank you so much. That was a, a very inspiring answer, um, as ever, um, to, to a wonderful question. Um, I noticed in, in the Q&A function that um, Connor Cahill has shared uh, a link, has, has expressed his, uh, his interest in the, uh, the conversation as it's unfolding, um, and says thank you, and has also uh, said that it's nice to see Alex Pentec here, and linked a video to some of his work, which myself and Autumn will be sure to send on in our B-Sides email 
uh, later on. So thank you so much, Connor, for sharing that. It's, it's wonderful to um, have the resources of other people operating in this sort of exclusive space, I guess, that Lisbeth, you're operating in um, also with, with us here tonight. So thank you so much for that. Um, we have one time for one or two more questions. Um, Sally Ryan Graver asks, uh, quite simply, Elizabeth, how do you write code for uh, origami? Ah, so the code for origami is um, exactly the code for robotics, actually, <laughs> which is really interesting. Um, yeah, and so really it's a, so with origami, it's really great, uh, as many of you in, um, in the participants list already know. <laughs> uh, so I'm like, I'm trying to be more technical now, um, since I, I know you guys are awesome. Uh, so what happens is, so when you, um, if you create a fold, uh, it, there's often a reaction that happens on the other end of that fold. So if you open up a piece of paper, uh, usually that means that something else in the design will also change. And so really, um, oftentimes what, what I try to do is just keep, uh, keep movements as simple as possible. So if you move one little thing, the whole thing will kind of expand. <laughs> and really you just need one small area of actuation to be able to move the whole piece. And so um, with robotics specifically, we had we had two servo motors that were just really attached as you might attach legs and wings and they just kind of alternate and they literally just turn left and right. And so the code actually was very simple. It was just left and right, but it can get more complicated coding. Um, of course, if you have sensors, um, infrared sensors that can detect when someone is too close or too far, a movement can happen. And so that's kind of how I really, um, I really love that coding can be involved in the artistic process. So uh, you can kind of involve the audience in that way. And so without thinking of robotics, um, but sometimes robots do. And yeah, and so coding is a definitely useful skill to have, <laughs> especially, um, I will say specifically coding uh, from coding for hardware is what I'll say was, uh, there's a coding for software, which is very different than, than what I do. But um, I definitely code for hardware. And um, so to follow on with a, net, uh, a question that is less technical, although that was really cool, that's a really cool question. Um, I never would have thought to ask about the coding, uh, but this is a little bit related to the kind of research group that you were a part of at the MIT Media Lab. Really, really interested in this idea of science for equity um, and science that is about or involved in or pursues kind of I hesitate to say social justice and like give me a slap on the hand if that's not the right word or the, word, the words that you'd like me to use. But this idea that science can now move away from this neutral stance and take a stand as something like, no, we are firmly here to open the door wider to people, to get more people involved in aerospace um, and, and engineering. So could you talk a little bit more about that research group and kind of science's new or evolving position with equity, inclusion, and social justice. Absolutely, and specifically relating to the space-enabled research group at the MIT Media Lab, I think that um, they're in a really unique place where, um, actually that's why Dr. Danielle Wood kind of left NASA to begin this group, is that um, uh, she was able to kind of blend uh, her knowledge and expertise in space with this area of um, environmental justice, social justice, justice is what she calls in, in general justice <laughs> and uh and it's always been um it, it was it's more difficult to do those things within the government is what i'll say um because it's uh it's largely focused on science but um it's great in that the space enabled group really um helps support uh, uh institutions that kind of already exist in other countries and kind of give them and provide them with data and information that they might not be aware of or that they might not have access to otherwise um, and so that was really um, I think there's there's a big it's kind of growing now that that area of uh, both space a lot of systems engineers now can also work in this area uh, which is really that doesn't happen before <laughs> and it, it really didn't and it was really wonderful now that um, you know you can apply uh, for example um, the Space Enabled Research Group has a really great project with Benin in West Africa where they are monitoring, helping monitor an invasive plant species that is involved in their rivers. And um, it's really interesting in that they would not have um, to view them from a satellite, to view that invasive plant from a satellite and also um, in situ, which means like with sensors in the ground, you get like a clear view of where this plant is at any given time, whereas before they didn't really know that. Um, and so that information was really valuable to kind of both their economy as well as uh, just uh, getting from place to place and um, 
uh, also harvesting this plant to use for other means as well. And so um, that's kind of an example of how that, how that happens. Uh, and they're doing really wonderful work in those areas. And hopefully it happens more. <laughs> so incredible. Elizabeth, we could listen to you speak all night. Um, this has been an <laughs> fascinating, wide-ranging discussion. Um, but unfortunately, we're just about at the time. Um, uh, we're just about at, at the end of our um, at the end of our, our time with you here tonight. But um, we've had such a wonderful time speaking to you, and we just want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts uh, for joining us and um, for being so willing to answer our excellent audience questions. And thank you so much to our audience for such um, incredibly specific questions. I'm so pleased that um, that there uh, that there was such an expert crowd in tonight. Um, it's really really genuinely very in inspirational to know that people were here speaking on the same level as you, but also for perhaps a more lay listener like myself, um, who's who's no expert on on robotics and aerospace and origami it was just absolutely fascinating listening to you tonight so thank you so much for being here with us um, and yeah as, as Autumn and I have both mentioned we'll send on um, a follow-up email to our attendees um, this evening with uh, the links that people have shared some resources hopefully a little bit more um, work with uh, work of Lisbeth's and if that uh, if that pesky paper has been published ideally we'll, we'll send it on as well um, <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating but Lisbeth thank you so much for being with us tonight um, this has been absolutely wonderful thank conversation you. thank you thank you so much um, thank you both so much for hosting and I'll make sure to send along my email just in case anybody has questions afterwards or wants to connect in some way. So thank you so much. It was wonderful speaking with you and thank you to everyone in the audience. <laughs> well, from all of us at Science Gallery Dublin um, and the Trinity Long Room Hub, uh, from our quarantine caves in Dublin to your quarantine cave in California and to all of the quarantine caves who are joining us from around the world. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. Our next session, um, we've gone to a monthly schedule. Our next session, our next mystery session uh, will be in mid-August. We'll follow up with you guys and send along more invitations, information, um, and exciting resources that you can dive into both artistic, uh, scientific, and at the really glorious delicious crossroads and those liminal spaces in between so stay safe stay curious and we'll see you guys next time thank you the hub is a community manuscript book and print cultures stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the time of the year library as well as being heard the hub is a space contemplating ireland through the communities this created by carl's the hub is about impact the hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years. <laughs>